It was supposed to be something great, a real spectacle, something to behold. You really would want to see this. It was the summer of 1902, and the British Empire had announced that they were going to anoint a new king. This was King Edward VII, if you're a history buff or anything like that. And also, if you're a history buff, you'll know, they hadn't done this in a long time. British monarchs tend to live quite a bit and reign until they're really, really old. You can see evidence of that now. And everybody was really excited. They wanted to see what the, what the British Empire was going to do. This was going to be a show. because At this time, this empire stretched the entire world, and you wanted to see how they were going to celebrate having a new king. So one man in particular, uh, his name was Mr. Henry. He had such a desire to see this coronation that he wanted to find himself a good seat. He went around everywhere in town, and he, he found this landowner, this guy who owned a building who over, that would oversee the coronation. His name was Mr. Krell. And so Mr. Henry paid Mr. Krell the sum of 75 pounds, which maybe that doesn't mean anything, right? But in modern day and in, in America, 75 pounds is $9,000. Paid this man $9,000 so that he could rent these rooms and look down and watch the coronation. But sadly for Mr. Krell uh, and for Mr. Henry, that didn't happen. King Edward, shortly before the coronation, got really sick. He had to get surgery, and surgery in 1902, not, you know, the, not, the most, uh, not the greatest thing to have to go through. And so they canceled everything. And Mr. Henry was left with this bill for $9,000, this room but then nothing to watch. Now, this is kind of a, might seem like a trivial story. It's like, why do we even remember this? Well, history remembers this because of what happens next. And we probably are familiar, we could guess what happens next. So there's a bill for about $9,000, and there are two parties that are upset with each other because neither really got what they wanted. So what do you think they did? They sued each other. Exactly, the law student. They sued each other. <laughs> Because each did not get what they wanted, what was promised. Specifically, Mr. Henry, who wanted to see a coronation ceremony, did not get to see that, but was left with a huge bill. And so they took, the, they took each other to court, and Mr. Henry was arguing. You know, the circumstances had changed. What I'd wanted no longer existed. Therefore, I'm no longer under an obligation to pay this money. And what happened was, the, court, the judge decided that that was believable, that was true. That because Mr. Henry's purpose was no longer there, he wanted to rent a room to watch a coronation that didn't happen, he didn't have to pay that bill. And that's why we remember that, that's why law students know what happens next, because this is a case in contract law. But I think we also have something to pull from this, right? We hear a story and we say, man, when I heard this story, it's kind of, it's actually appealing. It's this idea that even in the legal system, you have some sort of protection against uh, a change in circumstance. And so you might be coming here today, and there are a lot of things going on in your life. There are circumstances in your life that you never would have predicted, and you wish that you could appeal to some court, to some person, and say, oh man, things have really changed. I don't know if I want to fulfill the same obligations that I promised before. Maybe you're in some sort of job and you're unhappy there, and you say, oh, I didn't know I was going to be this way. 
isn't there something else? Isn't there some way I could get out of this? Or you have some sort of relationship with a, a family member, a close friend, and you're like, I did not know that friendship would be this difficult. Isn't there some way I could get out of this? Well, to some extent, especially in the business world, right, the change in circumstance is completely valid. But we have to be careful because we try to translate that mindset into our lives, especially when we're dealing with God. So often we have this problem that when we deal with God, we also see our promises to him as something that's conditioned, something that depends on our circumstances. And so if our circumstances change, we want to think, well, maybe my commitments can change too. And that just isn't the case. Our circumstances are real. They're unexpected. Oftentimes, they're very, very difficult. But our response doesn't change. In fact, in every circumstance, we're compelled to be faithful in Christ. In every circumstance, we are compelled to be faithful in Christ. And though this is not easy, it is good. It is possible. And as we open the word of God, we should see how this is possible. See that in every circumstance, we are, we are to be faithful with joy and contentment and obedience. So please turn with me in your Bibles today. The text for this morning is Philippians 4. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 13. Um, understand also that a lot of this, it's, it's hard just to jump into the, especially the, the latter portion of a letter without referring to the previous section. So we're going to be talking about them. But Philippians is a book that go through and read this week if you, if you wish, if you're wanting to understand more about what Paul means here. We have to understand the context. And for the, the guys who preached at Leroy, I want to thank them. And they've already gone through this a little bit, because especially Joel. Uh, where's Joel? But there's a lot of context here. It's a rich and encouraging book. Let's just talk about it a little bit as we go through. And understand that these words that were written to the Philippians, right? They were heard many, many, many years ago. But they were meant by God and by Paul to serve as an encouragement. They were meant by God specifically to be preserved for you to hear, even today. And so as we read that, let's try to remember that as well. That through the Holy Spirit, through that promise that is in Christ, we could understand chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 in our lives. So chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of hunger, of abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, how great are the works of your hands. How deep are the riches of your wisdom and your knowledge and your ways. We come before you unworthy because of our sin. But we ask for your grace. We ask that you grant us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. And that you would show us love. That you would show us your faithfulness. And you would have that love and faithfulness mark your people. We pray this through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
The first thing we need to understand, obviously, is what we just talked about. We need to understand the context of Philippians. And so we've been reading through another, we've been working through another book of Paul, and we're taking a short break this week. Uh, but we're, we're jumping right into another letter that, that Paul wrote, and we're trying to understand what has brought Paul to this point. Why is he writing these words? It's worth going back to review to see what has happened in the life of Paul. And so how have we gotten to chapter 4, verse 10? Well, we have to see that in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul kind of explains what he's going through. He finds himself bound in chains. He finds himself dealing with circumstances around him, circumstances that are grave, circumstances that are not only making him consider what he's doing, but life and death. And in all these circumstances, he responds with joy. I think that's the first point that we should see in this, in this passage is that we are to have joy in all circumstances. And this isn't an easy thing, but this is something that the text speaks to. In verse 10 it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned but had no opportunity. And then skipping to verse 12, Paul says, Paul says I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul has not been vague about his circumstances. He's not being overly dramatic when he says, I know how to abound and to be brought low. In chapter 1, as we said before, he is considering his circumstances in a very honest way to the Philippians. He's saying to them, I have two choices before me. To live, which promises suffering, or to die. And while, being, while, while dying and departing and being with the Lord is a, is a good thing, what does he choose? He says, I see it better for me to live now for your good. He's also seen in chapter 2 the suffering of a dear, dear friend. Uh, this friend's name was Epaphroditus, and Paul describes this as Epaphroditus was so ill, he was near death. And Paul had to watch this. He had to watch a friend suffer, even though Epaphroditus was eventually um, healed in chapter 2. It, was, it must have been difficult to see his close friend go through this illness. And then we, we see in chapter 3, as Paul is thinking about his life before he became an apostle, his life as a Pharisee, he does recognize that at, that life gave him a great deal of respect, a great deal of freedom. He wasn't in chains as a Pharisee. He was the one putting people in chains. He knows that, to some respect, he has lost many, many things since he has followed Christ. But when he gets to verse 12, and he, verse 12 in chapter 4, and he speaks of being brought low, being hungry, seeing abundance as well as need, we know he, he means it because he's experienced it. He doesn't say this in a way that we should take as academic or something that is trivial, but something that Paul has experienced and now he wants the Philippians and us as well to learn from it. These were experiences in his life that were serious. They defined his entire life. Eventually, they would define how he died as well. But in all of these circumstances, Paul shows the same response. He shows joy. Throughout the book of Philippians, you know, if you're going to read through it this week, I challenge you just read through it and count how many times Paul says he rejoices. And then think about why he's rejoicing. 
At the beginning of the letter, he prays, prays with joy for the Philippians. That's Philippians 1.4. Then he says, I continue to work with joy for you. And that's in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He tells them to rejoice, for he is drawing joy from the simple fact that the Philippians are concerned about them. You catch that in uh, the beginning of the passage here, where he says, I'm rejoiced, I'm, I'm joyful in the fact that you're just showing concern for me. And that might seem like a, a little bizarre, because if you're going through a tough time in your life, and someone just shows concern for you, that might be something easy to just shrug off and say, what good does your concern do for me? Things go wrong, and people hurt us, and maybe all our plans fall apart. We're not going to rejoice, typically. I don't think that's our natural response. Nor are we going to be happy with just the concern of someone else, unless we understand what that concern means. While joy is not our natural response, when we see it through the, through the terms that, that Paul talks of in this book, and through the, the loving response that God has instituted for his church, then maybe it will be, or it should be. How can Paul be moved to rejoice uh, just because the Philippians are showing concern for his hardship? Well, I think there's probably an image of it that we're familiar with um, that might help us understand it. So Paul is, con- Paul is rejoicing just because someone is showing concern. I kind of, this reminds me of a situation with a friend of mine, uh, it's no one in this room, though. You might draw some parallels. Um, this friend had, at the time, three small children, and he was always being criticized. He's saying, you, you definitely favor your daughter. Your daughter is your favorite child. And that's a tough criticism to have. And he was saying, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't have favorites amongst my kids. But I definitely do. There is some special relationship between him and his daughter where this is how it would, this is how it would play out. He would, every time he came into the room, his daughter would come up to him. And his daughter would say, Dad, how are you doing? Dad, tell me what you did today. Dad, Dad, Dad. And so for the parents in the room, you know, that, that might not be the easiest thing in the world when uh, kids are always asking you questions and they always want to know what, what you're doing. But what does that represent? That represents that your kids, they're showing concern for you. They want to know what you did. What does it mean when a daughter continually um, goes up to her father and says, Dad, what did you do? What did you do today? What, how are you doing? She's showing concern. She's showing love. She's showing that you know, she sees that her father loves her, and she is responding in the most natural way possible. I love you, therefore I'm showing concern for you. This joy... Or the, and then the response to this, right? You're being shown love by somebody because out of their concern. And you should respond with joy, right? Because it takes you out of your circumstance. And you're not just focused on, oh man, I'm going through so much. You're seeing, look, I might be going through a lot, but these people show great concern for me. Sadly, that's not going to be always going to be enough though, right? People will not always show concern for you. And that's, we have to face that. We have to be honest about that, that people may fail us. But then ultimately, how are we shown concern and love and joy? Ultimately, it's through Christ. It's through joining together in in this. Philippians 2, um, very famous passage, and uh, something that I don't think you can read through or 
um, discuss Philippians without talking about in some way. But Philippians 2.1 says, Paul states to the Philippians, he says, So if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what should you do? You should count others more significant than you. You should show concern for them, real, genuine concern. And then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. How? By having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. People may fail you. People may not always show that sort of concern. But Christ modeled it perfectly. This Having this mind amongst you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that every tongue may confess, so that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, that Jesus is Lord, to glory, uh, to the glory of God the Father. There's a great deal of joy that you should be pulling out of this, this realization, right? That concern through the church and ultimately concern that's shown through the sacrifice of Christ is a good thing. It's something that's greater than your circumstance. Specifically, right? Christ's death on the cross is something that is greater than your circumstances, that, con- that conquers sin, that conquers death. Therefore, how do you respond? Is it with joy? It probably should be. But just as we, we kind of know that we should have joy in all circumstances, it's not always the, the most natural thing. And continuing on in the passage, it's not as if Paul just stops and says, have joy in all circumstances, okay. It would be easy if we could just have joy in all circumstances, but that's not our response. Uh, in verse 11, we see kind of a building on this where Paul says, and then also have contentment in all circumstances. And in some respects, if we had joy in all circumstances, we would probably have contentment in all circumstances. But I don't think that's the case. That's, that's not, it's not as if, oh, we're really good at having joy in all circumstances, therefore we don't have to think about contentment. No, it's, they complement each other to a great deal. We need to be thinking about it more, Right? There's not, we don't just need to think about joy, but we do need to think about contentment. We do need to continue reading on. Verse 11 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, though Paul was definitely in need. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In every situation, I am supposed to be content. But we're not content. So often, um, the discussions that we have throughout the week display. We're not content. We want so much more than what we have. We want something, especially if it's usually worldly things, that we do not have, um, that we, we describe as we just can't live without. And that's, 
that's discontentment, right? You might not talk about it on, on Sunday mornings. You might not talk about it with, with church people, but I, I think we'll see it a lot in just our attitudes and the way that we speak to others. In verse 12, we discussed previously, right, Paul, he knows a lot about being in high places and low places, having abundance and also being in need. And we should recognize that contentment is not just an issue that, you know, it's not a general issue, but it has its specific form, uh, both in that high situation when you have abundance and need. It's a problem that, that is in both. And perhaps the, the most foreign one to us might be, oh, man, how can you not be content if you had abundance? Right? How can you not be happy if you had everything in the world? Uh, what, what comes to mind is, there was the competition during uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. If you had a perfect bracket, they were going to give you a billion dollars. And, the, and the, the simple way to say it's like, man, I'd be happy if that happened. I would be so happy. Um, you know, the chances are really slim, and um, a lot of it would go to taxes. You know, man, I would, I would just, I'd be abounding, right? There's no way I wouldn't be content and joyful. But that's Let's be clear here. Right? What, what happens when we have abundance is, is false contentment. It's not real. So often when, abun- when contentment stems from your abundance, it's not, it's not only false, but it's dangerous because it's, it's te- contentment based on something temporary. It's saying, as long as I have this, I will be happy. But then what do you say to somebody? Well, what, what is the concern that always accompanies that? I have a great deal. What, what happens next? I'm fearful that what I have will be taken away. Maybe this isn't a billion dollars or a billion dollars after taxes for you, but it can be a bunch of other things. It can even be good things, right? It's not... Uh, our, our possessions aren't necessarily bad things, but when we, when we have contentment because they exist, because, we ha- because of our possessions and then they're taken away, they're shown to be kind of false idols. When we have even contentment that's based on, oh, I have a relationship with this person, or I have um, everything's going my way right now at work or in school or something else, but then that's taken away. What's, what's displayed in our life? We were drawing contentment out of something very temporary. There's no security in that sort of contentment. There's no knowing that, oh, that is something that is eternal. Uh, and also, we'll, we'll skip on, but we're going to revisit that a little bit, but we should probably talk about what it means to be content in times of need because that might be the most common on the one that you, you understand, that there's always something more that I want. There's always something that I have a desire for. And their voices, whether or not they're spoken or they're in your mind, that say, I really, if I had this, I would be happy. If I had this, I could do so much more. In fact, if I could control, I think this is ultimately what, what we're saying to ourselves is, if I could control what I had and what I did not have, I would be content in all things. <laughs> but there are probably two problems to this, which is, one, you're never going to have that control. And the second is, if you could, if you could control what, everything, 
you're not guaranteed contentment out of that either. You're giving yourself, you could be giving yourself um, every rich, every, all the riches on the earth and every worldly pleasure. We're not promised contentment from that. You look to the example of, of King Solomon who had a great deal of wealth and a great deal of earthly pleasures, but it's not contentment that he writes about. It's, it's vanity. And so even in those difficult circumstances, right, where you say, oh man, I really, I want this. If I'd be happy if I had this. We should recognize that even these valid desires that we have, they could be leading us in the wrong way. They're not leading us, I don't think, towards contentment. Because we don't recognize what is said throughout Scripture again and again and again. It says, it's God who provides. It's God who gives. It's God who takes away. Later on in chapter 4, what does Paul say? He says, God will supply my every need and yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say according to your own ability or your own righteousness, but it's the riches and glory of Christ Jesus. It's also God who takes away. He ordains suffering, and it's not suffering that is without a purpose. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad, and I'll rejoice with you all. He's not saying, if this terrible thing happens, if a terrible thing happens to me, I will be discontent. He's saying, I will be glad in that. Because the purpose for Paul is the Philippians. And ultimately, the purpose is it serves the glory of God. And it does refine Paul. It does build him. Though in his body, he's being torn down. In his body, he is suffering. There are no regrets in terms of what he had. And as Paul thinks about his past life, he doesn't say, what might have been except to make a point that whatever might have been wouldn't have been worth what he has right now. In Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count something? No, everything. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and he counts them not as something he wistfully looks back towards, but as rubbish, in order that he might gain Christ. And being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but having faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, uh, righteousness from God that depends on faith, he knows this is true because of the power of the resurrection. And he knows also because of the power of the resurrection, he probably has to share in those sufferings becoming like Christ in his death, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Your present circumstances, those things that kind of drive you towards discontentment, that drive you towards thinking, maybe things would be better if I could control what was going on. Those circumstances are from God. Those circumstances are there if you are a child of God to help you rely on him, not to rely on yourself. In these circumstances, there's also this promise that if you are a child of Christ, are a child of God through faith in Christ, 
then your circumstances are ultimately with him and not with the world. That the truth for Christians is, in every circumstance, God is in control, and in every circumstance, those, every circumstance is working for your good. Can we find contentment in that? Probably not automatically. But through faith, there's a great deal of contentment in just knowing that our circumstances are from the Lord. And then finally, uh, we get to <laughs> this last point, this last verse in, in chapter 4. It's verse 13. And we see that we don't, aren't just supposed to have joy and contentment, right? But we're also supposed to have strength. And to some degree, we have to be careful here because how many people have heard in their lives just verse 13 quoted to them, I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. It might be fairly common. This is the, I could throw a touchdown for Jesus. Um, or I could do something that makes me the center of attention. All, for, all because Jesus strengthens me. And that's, that's really dangerous, right? I don't think that's, that's what it means. That's not what Paul means when he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need a bit of caution here. It doesn't say, I can seek my own good because God is strong. Or worldly riches, earthly fame, that's going to come to me because God strengthens me. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say, I could suffer through bad times, through illness, and then survive miraculously, right? That doesn't, it doesn't even say that. It doesn't say that you're going to, um, it doesn't say that you're going to make it through in a worldly sense, but it says, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. The context here is, I can obey God in all circumstances because he strengthens me. In every situation in my life, I can respond in obedience because it is God's strength that works in me, not my own. I hope this is made clear in the context, and perhaps you know, this requires even more study. There's always more study to be had. It's not like we're, uh, we're probably very prone to think, oh, I could do this all in my own power. But you read through the scripture, is that what the gospel says? No, it's I can respond in God's strength. Chapter 2 of Philippians says, there's a command. It says, work out your, fa- your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're used to, if you read that out of context too, it just makes you fearful and trembling. But why are you to work out your faith with fear and trembling? It's because it's God who works in you. Both to will and to work. And then this last portion I think is very encouraging. For his good pleasure. God works with you and works within you in all circumstances to accomplish his will for his good pleasure. At the end of this passage, if you get to, you read verse 10 and 11 and 12, and you say, oh, I'm supposed to be joyful, and I'm supposed to be content, but I'm not. Okay, I would join you in that. Um, when you get to verse 13, and there should be this additional encouragement, which says, joy and contentment in all circumstances happens through the strength of God not through your own. For he works all situations for your good. And as we saw before, for his good pleasure. He doesn't give you a task that's too heavy to carry. John 14 tells us, he will not leave you as orphans, but he will come to you. God is our strength for obedience, just as he has always been. 
and in the same way that he has always been, not through moralistic commands, but through the work completed by Christ on the cross. We were never able to fulfill the requirements of the law. We were never able to be completely obedient to God, nor did we want to be. So how do we have strength to obey God? Because that strength is given to us, even though we don't deserve it. That strength is given to us because God, in his grace and in his timing, sent his son to do what we could not, that is, live a perfect life, suffer an unjust death, and in every circumstance, when even he is faced with death, he responds in obedience, what we could not do. And in that death that we deserve, there is a payment for our sin, for our failure, for the root of our discontentment, for the root of our lack of joy. And now, the life that he lives, having conquered death, having arisen, having ascended to be with the Father, that's our hope, that's our reminder that he's already triumphed over every circumstance in your life, even death. Nothing can take you away if you are, nothing can take you away from that truth if you are, within, if you are in Christ. Can you remind yourself of that as you struggle with joy and discontentment and a feeling of weakness? That in every circumstance, whatever occurs in your life, whether you're in abundance, whether you're in need, that God is there and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Why does God strengthen us? So that in so many things, in all things, in fact, we may imitate Christ and live out the gospel. There is the possibility to do that, again, not in our own strength, but because the gospel is true. These verses were meant as an encouragement to the Philippians. In a time where Paul was suffering, uh, the Philippians could have easily also faced trials in their own life. They were charged to seek joy and contentment and strength for obedience. And they were to be happy in that, right? And maybe that's not the place you find yourself right now. Um, even for Christians, there's easily the, you know, there's always the option to listen to the world instead and say, man, I know that my eternity lies in Christ, but I'm just not happy. I'm just not content. I'm just not capable of obeying. What's the response? The response is not to turn inward toward yourself because that builds more discontentment, a deeper lack of joy. Instead, it's to turn towards Christ and say, Lord, I have to remember what you have already done. Respond in joy and contentment and respond in your strength, not my own. And if you've never believed that, if you've never believed that, to be honest, there's not, there's no hopeful message that I can give to you. I can't say, well, just think positively. Things will be better. Um, you can't just say, oh, it'll all blow over. Things will be okay. It's the easy statement for us to make in kind of in our society. Someone confronts you with hardship and you say, it'll probably be fine. No, the only encouraging thing that, that Christians can respond to in this way is to say, Christ's offer is open to all. The gospel is true for 
everyone who believes it. So, well, it's true for everyone, but, <laughs> but if you believe it, then there's that hope. Then there's that deep root of joy. If that's not the case and, and you want to talk to somebody, I would encourage you to talk to somebody about that. Um, and also know, right, it's, Scripture speaks to your hardship too. It doesn't just say, here is a gospel to everybody who is already perfect. It says, here's a gospel to people that aren't happy with their lives, that aren't always overflowing with joy. That's for, it's for sinners. And then for, maybe you just need some more encouragement as a believer to know that even though you're going through hardship, ultimately that won't last. Even though you're, going, you're suffering, that's not a permanent state. Our circumstances now, there's a great deal of un, kind of uncertainty and difficulty, but ultimately there is no uncertainty. There is no difficulty. I began with a story about the coronation of a king and why was that delayed? It's because he got sick, and they had to reschedule it. Well, there's another coronation coming. There is a time that is, maybe we don't know, but is promised and completely unchangeable. There's a coming of a king that is greater than what Edward VII or whoever you might name. And that king will bring with him something much greater than a spectacle much greater than a a few days of partying. If you'd like, you can turn with me. It's uh, Revelation chapter 21. And I'll just read with us to close. I'll read for us to close. It's Revelation chapter 21. I'll begin in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down Out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on that throne... He says, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promises that you give us in Scripture, for the truth of your word. I pray that we would recognize this in our lives and that in every circumstance we would turn towards you responding in the way that's been outlined here. Um, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we turn our attention now not only to the work that he has completed on the cross, but things that are yet to come to a new heaven, a new earth, and to a time where we are with him in paradise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.